Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. York County has lost 6,600 manufacturing jobs since the Great Recession began in 2007. Many of those jobs could be described as high-paying, family-sustaining jobs. We hear that often today. Of course, York County isn't alone. Rust Belt states like Pennsylvania have been bleeding manufacturing jobs for years. But some places, Pittsburgh is most often mentioned here in Pennsylvania, have found new industries to replace them. But in a recent package of stories, the York Daily Record asked, what's next? And the author of those stories is with us today, York Daily Record business reporter Gary Haber. Gary, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. And as is the case the last two weeks with the, the political conventions, we have abbreviated segments today. So I encourage you, if you have a question or a comment, to call as soon as you can, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Gary, as I said, uh, we, meaning Pennsylvania, many cities and towns, counties across the state, have been bleeding manufacturing jobs for a long time now. What prompted this story? Well, we wanted to take a look at what's next for the economy. York County's always been known for manufacturing. We have everything from Harley-Davidson to its potato chips and a slew of much smaller manufacturers uh, in, di- in different industries. But we wanted to, wanted to kind of see, you know, what happened, wh- where do we go from where we're at now? And we don't have much of a tech sector, but once we started looking into it, we started to realize there are a few tech companies that are, in their own small way, are really starting to change the face of your county's economy. And what they're doing is they're bringing in high-paying jobs. They're bringing in uh, software designers and computer computer programmers People from places, colleges like Drexel, Pitt, other other um, other places around the country, and they're starting to fuel more demand in York, in downtown York, for more high-end apartments, more high-end restaurants. So it's starting to have a bit of a ripple effect. The question is, you know, how do we get more of these uh, businesses, in, you know, interested in coming to York, and what kind of things? can be offered for people who may not want to go to college or um, may not want to go into that kind of field. And we're going to talk about all those things, but uh, one thing I do like to do is kind of define some of these terms. When you say tech jobs, what do you mean by tech jobs? Well, I guess I'm sort of using that term loosely. Yeah, I know. Well, a lot of us do, yeah. Yeah, I- I'm thinking of people who maybe design computer software, um, people who, who people who maybe work with advanced technology, now, I'm sure that would also include maybe some manufacturing because a lot of manufacturing is very highly automated and it's very technologically um, you know, influenced. But I'm thinking more of like the two companies that I wrote about in the story. One designs um, software that's used by um, laboratories so every, to run their uh, laboratory research and clinical trials. And the other one is sort of in a very interesting niche business that combines sort of old school with new school. What they do is their their niche is, it's a company called Dataforma. What their niche is, it's software that roofing contractors use to run their businesses. And somehow they hit on this idea, and uh, they've got uh, a workforce of maybe about 25 people. 
Hmm. And it's, from what I read in your story, it started off uh, a lot less than 25 people. It was basically two guys. It, right. was, the, it was the two founders. Mm-hmm. And now it's up to 25 people. All right, let's go back a little bit. Describe the loss of manufacturing jobs in York County. And by the way, let me remind everyone out there, yes, we're talking about York County, and we're talking with Gary Haver from the York Daily Record, but many of the things we're talking about today could encompass almost anywhere in our region. Some areas have done, some cities and towns have done a little bit better, some not as well, and are asking this same question of what's next. So Gary, with that, describe the loss of manufacturing jobs. Well, this is something that's been going, that's been going on for 20, 30 years. You've had manufa- sort of commodity-based manufacturing, things that could be done cheaper elsewhere, moving offshore. So if you were making, just an example, let's say you were making some, some part or a, or, or a screw, something that's very simple, that could be made, you know, elsewhere. Those jobs are those jobs migrated offshore. Um, you had com- you had companies, you know, some companies cutting back. You had companies that were just shutting down. Uh, manufacturing is still a huge part of your county's economy. It's still really what drives the economy. But the question is, where do you know what? What, what should we emphasize and what kind of manufacturing jobs should we emphasize so that we're holding on to, you know, like value-added um, companies where, where, where what we're doing in York can't be duplicated in China or elsewhere in the, or, you know, or across the border in Mexico, um, where, we're do, we're, where we're producing something that could only be produced here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's take a call from Dennis in East Pennsboro. Dennis, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Good morning. morning. Listen, I looked at this issue for a long time as a state capitol reporter, and I ran into one of the most unusual situations at the Kew Creek mine disaster way back 10, 12 years ago, when those guys were trapped for days in that mine in Somerset. And I suggested to one of the women waiting patiently, I said, when he comes out of there, what do you do next? He said, mine coal. We mine coal. We don't do anything else. They say, what happens if they reopen the steel mills in Johnstown or something? We mine coal. That's what we'll do. That's always what we'll do. We're never going to change because we mine coal. That attitude prevails in southwestern Pennsylvania and in northeastern Pennsylvania. And I'll be honest with you, Scott. Have you seen a livery stable around lately? Have you seen a blacksmith on every corner lately? Things change. This is going to change, and I think we're going to drift into high-tech jobs, academic, medical research, that kind of thing. And I hate to say it for all those people that have spent generations in the mines and generations in the mills and generations in the foundries. It's coming to an end. And I'm 70, Mm. and I'm adjusting to the change. Thank you very much. Dennis, thank you very much for your call. His point that uh, workers have been slow to change, is that true? Well, I'm not sure about that. it's it's difficult for anybody to change the way the way they do their jobs. I mean, journalists have to change the way the way we do our jobs. And we I ask about tweeting ahead of time is something you didn't do ten years exactly. ago. Exactly. I mean, you know, taking taking video, uh, taking photographs on your smartphone. That's all part of what journalists do. And people in manufacturing and elsewhere are also f- being called upon to do things that they never did. But I thought one of the things that was interesting that I, it, for this story was to take a look at the local economic development. F- experts in York County, they've identified, um, this is, I'm talking about the, uh, a, a coalition that includes the Economic Alliance. 
uh, York County Economic Alliance. They've this partnership. They've identified specific jobs in manufacturing and specific jobs in healthcare that they think will be in high demand, are pay better than the average, and don't require people to go. Don't require a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree, a four-year yeah. college degree. Mm -hmm. They the, the, what they're calling it is careers in two, or so it's you need roughly two years beyond high school, and this is sort of a strategy for setting for putting people in position so that they're doing the kind of manufacturing or healthcare jobs that will be in demand and are not likely to be outsourced and are not likely to be eliminated because these are the jobs that. Um, that employers have have said that they want, and they're willing to pay for those people to do those jobs. Mm -hmm. Dennis may be, have been referring to maybe some older workers. I mean, those days are, are, are probably gone everywhere where, uh, you know, someone got out of high school, could get a high-paying manufacturing job with just a, a high school diploma, maybe not, not even graduating high school, and stay there for the rest of their lives until they retire. Uh, that kind of thing just doesn't seem to happen anymore. No, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty rare. First of all, it's pretty rare for for anybody in any field right. to spend their right. entire career with one employer. Right. But the idea, but maybe even the same industry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and the idea that any that that people could come out of high school, um, and get a job that you know would sustain their family. I think that's I think that's pretty tough. I think now it's probably more likely that if you're equipped with a high school diploma, you may get a job in a much lower paying field. Where you know you're struggling to maybe make ten bucks an hour. So what you were talking about earlier about maybe uh, jobs that wouldn't require a four year degree, but maybe go to school for two years. And I guess the the question arises is, does that mean that everyone graduating high school has to have some type of post high school training? Well. I think you know, I think it depends on you know what your aspirations are. Um, I think it depends maybe on you know what you want to earn, how how willing you are to go back to school. Um, this you know this careers in two program, um, careers in two years program, it's pointing people in a direction that would be beneficial for them, whether people want to take it or not. I don't know, but I'll give you one example. One of the things that they that they a field that they've talked about, which I didn't even know was uh, was a field, is something called mechatronics. It sounds to me like it's ba it's essentially teaching people to become generalists in fixing and and maintaining all kinds of different industrial equipment. And one of the people that I I, I spoke to um, was working in manufacturing, went through that program. And he was able to get a much better paying job as a, as a result of that. And uh, that, that's the kind of job where he's able to you know, own a home, to, to support, a, support a family. So there are jobs out there. And I think it's a matter of you know, what they're trying to do is get people to be aware of those jobs and to think about that. Mm -hmm. Our guest during this portion of the program is Gary Haber, who is the business reporter for the York Daily Record. We're talking about a recent series that uh, Gary wrote uh, having to do with what's next. What's the uh, next big economy, uh, the next big industry job creator in York County? And by the way, we have a link to this uh, package of stories on our website, WITF.org. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. We, we kind of got off track. 
back, Gary, when we were talking about the suggestions that were made in the story for which way to go. Tech was one. What about some others? Well, it's interesting. And again, this kind of plays on the theme of manufacturing. Um, there's a, there seems to be a, a shortage of people to go into well, a well, shortage of welding jobs. So one of the people that I interviewed was a guy who has a welding company with operations in Hanover and in York. And he f- felt that there was such a, such a shortage of workers that he went and started his own program. So he's now training work. He's developing a pipeline of welders who will come to work for him, but also a pipeline that other employers can benefit from. In addition, uh, Harrisburg Area Community College, they've had a welding program up at the, at the Harrisburg campus, but they didn't have one at their York County campus. So they committed about a half a million dollars to create a, a kind of a, a, a state-of-the-art welding lab on their York campus, and they've, they're, they're training people there too. So that's another field. It's within manufacturing, but it's a specific type of manufacturing, a specific type of job within manufacturing. Are there, uh, did you find that, okay, you hear that there are a shortage, there is a shortage of uh, welders, but uh, is there a demand for the services that a welder, the welding that they do? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, that one company in particular uh, needs, you know, said that they needed people. He's hired a number of those graduates of that program. Um, they, they've identified, you know, I believe Harrisburg area community college as well. You know, they consult with them. They consult with employers in the area, excuse me, to find out what their needs are. Mm-hmm. What kind of money does a welder make? I mean, I, anecdotally, I have heard they made make out pretty well. You know, that's that's not a number I had in the story, so I'm not specific. Uh, I don't know that specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. When you ask the big question of what's next, uh, what's the next big industry, I guess one of the questions I have is who decides? Who decides what the next big industry is? I guess there's not one person, one group. There are a number of people, a number of organizations, a number of groups working together to try to uh, you know, find, w- fulfill what the future is going to be economically in, in your county. And again, I make the point uh, throughout the region. But that big question, who decides? Well, I think that's a really good, a really good question. I think a lot of people can have input. It could be, the, it could be companies themselves that decide that they want to settle in York County for, what, for whatever reason. It could be the local economic development folks who already have a have a, a say in this, you know, uh, they're, in, they're in, involved in it. It could be the universities by emphasizing particular programs. What that uh, com- uh, that roofing company, software company that I mentioned, they have they're set, they're headquartered at the J.D. Brown Center for Entrepreneurship, which is a, a part of York College. So York College, through this J.D. Brown Center, they're trying to grow some high-tech startups. And they're, they're one of several companies that are in there. Um, so it, it, could t- it could take a, um, it, you know, you, you get different people that have different interests. Uh, so Do they it, have to work together? Right. Well, you would think that that would be the most efficient way to right. do it. But you could develop different, you, could, you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket. You could develop different things. Um, you could develop several different things. There's no reason why you can't have high tech and and advanced manufacturing, and it and there's a there's one uh, fella who is uh, starting a program to train uh, 
people to, to, to train a generation of computer coders, people to write the code for computers. And his thinking is, we, we, don't, we don't need more app developers. We don't need more people to develop games on your smartphone in your county. What he wants to do is kind of use that uh, to develop people who would use the code in advanced manufacturing and robotics and other things mm -hmm. that would play off New York's traditional role as a manufacturing center, but also bring a high-tech element to it. I mentioned Pittsburgh, and I don't know whether that's a good comparison, but Pittsburgh is held up in Pennsylvania as the example of a Rust Belt a city that uh, you know was known for steel, still is, uh, but made that transition from heavy industry to well, what's described as meds and eds now, uh, universities, uh, education, uh, and by meds they had high tech companies uh, developing uh, uh, medications and working in healthcare industry. I don't know if there's a, a comparison with your county, but Pittsburgh was one of those places that made the transition. What has kept your county from making this transition? Well, one of the things that's that's helped Pittsburgh, and it's also helped you know Baltimore develop more of a, a start you know a lot of startups, is if you have a major research university in your town in your city, that they they tend to spin off a lot people that are working in engineering, sciences, things like that, they, their research can be spun off into a for-profit company. That's what happened at Carnegie Mellon. You have a lot of these startups in Pittsburgh that sprung from research that was done at Carnegie Mellon. Baltimore, the same thing. They're starting to develop, develop more of a high-tech culture. A lot of that is startups that came from Johns Hopkins. Interestingly enough, in Baltimore, what they have is they've developed a lot of startup companies that are in the ed tech field. So uh, companies that develop software to help teachers teach better, companies that help um, school administrators manage their finance, the school's finances better. Uh, a lot of that, some of that is connected to Hopkins. Uh, some of that is connected to uh, some startup incubators that they have in, in Baltimore. So having a research university really helps. Uh, so you have to you, you use the resources that you have, but also having major hospitals helps. And York has two major hospitals. So you can develop a lot of jobs in healthcare, not necessarily, you know, going beyond doctors and nurses, but also people to, you know, take your, take your blood to uh, be occupational and physical therapists. Those are jobs that pay really well. And they fall into that category where you may not need a college, a, a two for your college degree in some of those fields. You know, just a couple of minutes left, Gary, but uh, early on you mentioned, and you mentioned this in your story, about uh, these better attracting these better-paying jobs that uh, younger people maybe take those jobs. Uh, younger people either want to live in the city, we're talking about the city of York, uh, but they want entertainment, bars, restaurants, that kind of thing in, uh, in, in the city. So... I guess one of the questions I ask is, is it a chicken or egg thing? If you have the restaurants, you have the bars, you have the entertainment, does that attract more young people? Or do those things develop after you've attracted these young people working in these, in these industries? Well, I think what happens is you're not going to get people opening up restaurants or retail or apartments unless they see that there's demand for it. Uh, it's not like build it and they will come. I right. think it's like, right. you know, you build it if you think they will come. And we're starting to develop more restaurants in York. Um, we're certainly getting, we're seeing more 
be people taking industrial buildings or other commercial spaces and developing them into um, uh, you know very very attractive apartments and they're they're looking for people to move to move into the city and part of that is uh, you not only need to count on the base of people who already live in your county uh, and to convince them to move in from the suburbs but uh, you're looking to get people to come in fresh from other areas. Somebody who, you know, let's say graduated from Drexel is used to living in Philly and now wants to come to work at, at a high-tech firm in York and says, gee, I like downtowns. Uh, I'll, I'll check out York. Mm -hmm. Because then you don't have to convince people who maybe grew up in York County in the suburbs and remember downtown York in previous years when it wasn't as as lively to say, to, you know, to overcome that and get them to move in downtown. Somebody comes in fresh, they see the city for what it is with a fresh set of eyes, and they may be used to living in a city. And, you know, we also point out, as many people are aware, Southern York County has grown so much because you have people who are working in Maryland and uh, Baltimore suburbs who living in Pennsylvania. Gary Habers, the business reporter for the York Daily Record, uh, we, have, uh, a, we have a link to his stories on what's next for York County's economy. But again, I make the point that uh, this could hold true with many other regions in our area. But, uh, Gary, there's a link on our website, WITF.org. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Ahmadiyya Muslim Community USA is hosting a three-day conference starting Friday in Harrisburg to, quote, spiritually rejuvenate Muslim Americans. The conference comes at what is a tense time for many Muslims after terrorist attacks in San Bernardino, Orlando, Istanbul, and Iraq. The Abadiyya Muslim community has launched a campaign entitled True Islam and Extremist. Our guest today is Salam Bhatti, who is a spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Mr. Bhatti, welcome back to the program. Uh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. And if you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-725-75... What am I talking about? 1-800-729-7532. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.com. Org. All right, let's talk about the conference that starts on Friday. What's its purpose? So its purpose is twofold. One, as you said, is to spiritually rejuvenate all those who attend. And it's important to note that I generalized all those who attend instead of saying just Muslims alone. Right, right. Uh, we have hundreds of guests uh, who are non-Muslim who return year after year because they enjoy that spiritual recharge that they also receive from this event. Uh, and secondly, it's also to promote uh, fraternal ties, brotherhood and sisterhood, to not just make us an organization, which is the largest Muslim organization in America, but also a stronger community. So who is the conference aimed at? So it's aimed at the Ahmadi Muslims uh, here in America, uh, and the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community USA uh, is the nation's oldest Muslim community. We've been here since 1920, and we are celebrating our 68th annual convention, and it's been here for several years right here in Harrisburg. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Why, why Harrisburg? Harrisburg is just a beautiful uh, place. We have a strong uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community chapter here. Uh, you might know of the mosque on Division Street. Yes. Uh, and we've held so many interfaith dialogues. We have a great relationship with the community. And the farm show, it has everything we need. Mm -hmm. uh, the release that you put out in the headline, it uses the word Islamophobic. I mentioned in my introduction that uh, for many 
uh, Muslim Americans tense times. What are you talking about when you're talking about uh, this tension and Islamophobic? You know, Pew recently reported that 60% of Americans don't know a Muslim. So it's very important for those 60% and others to come to these types of dialogues and these types of conventions to meet a Muslim and make a Muslim friend. A lot of these Islamophobes generally call for, I want to see thousands of Muslims gather in peace and, and condemn terrorism. Well, this is your opportunity to come and see over 6,000 Muslim Americans come, gather in peace, and condemn terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about Donald Trump? Uh, well, you know, uh, we have a motto in our community, love for all, hatred for none. And for those politicians who might be espousing uh, vitriol against Islam, we want to say, listen, you know, we both have the same interests in mind. We want to keep our nation safe and secure. That's the interest, which is why we launched the True Islam campaign. You know, over 4,000 Americans, Muslim and non-Muslim, have signed on to this campaign. And they are educating themselves about what Islam's true teachings are so that we can look for those who might be headed towards extremism. And this way we can make our nation safer. When you say look for those who may be heading toward extremism, uh, what characteristics do those people have? What do you look for? Something that they, uh, it's something innate in us that we can tell when somebody's headed towards a radical thought. Maybe they're angrier, maybe they're saying things like, you know, you know something as simple as something negative towards America, that they want to do something. Uh, they might even want to say something that they want to fly to the Middle East to join a certain group. So we need to be out there and be able to, if we see something, say something. So we should communicate with our local authorities, be cooperative, uh, invite people to our mosques, keep our doors open, and let people know who we truly are. That was my next question. If you do see someone uh, a Muslim American sees another Muslim who is talking about flying to the Middle East, is uh, apparently taking on some extremist causes. Um, what do you do? You talk to them. You know, you try to reason them down. If it doesn't work, then we go to the authorities. Because I, we, in Islam, we are taught that the death of an innocent is like the death of all of mankind. It's not just the death of a Muslim or the death of a believer. It's the death of an innocent person. It's the death of all of mankind. And we have seen so much death happening in, of innocence throughout the world over the past decade and a half. That is just, it's just too much. Even one is too much. So we need to make sure that we nip this in the bud and we let the authorities know. Now, I, I know that you understand the situation, but you know many Americans are frightened because of the terrorist attacks, and mentioned some of them. Um, you know, carried out in the name of the Islamic State in San Bernardino, uh, Iraq, of course, the killer in Orlando. Uh, these people lived. The people who carried out those attacks, uh, not Iraq, but uh, San Bernardino, Orlando. These people lived in the United States for a long time. Had friends uh, or part of their communities had uh, you know decent jobs and then one day they attack and kill Americans that's what frightens a lot of people is that how do I know you know this is as a result of failed Muslim leadership Uh, we've seen corruption enter Muslim leadership we've seen political elements come into Muslim leadership which is why we really need to focus on uh, what is being taught in mosques You know, we have the Khalifa of Islam, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, who currently lives in London. He leads tens of millions of Muslims in over 200 nations. 
And in our 120 plus year history, we have never had an act of terrorism per- perpetrated in the name of our faith. And we will never have something like that because our religion teaches that jihad is a peaceful struggle. What these Muslim, other, other Muslim leaders have done is trained and taught their community that jihad is a violent thing, that we are to go out and kill uh, those who are non-Muslim and those who are even Muslim who might not be practicing correctly, quote unquote. So we need to let people know that faith is something between a person and their God, and this is not for something for man or people to come in between. Jihad is one of those terms that we hear here in the United States uh, often associated with terrorism. Um, you know, I know from talking to Muslims over the years that jihad is not as it's been the terrorist, you know, the way they've taken it up. Explain jihad, if you would. Jihad, very simply, it's an Arabic word. It means struggle. You know, we all go through struggles. You don't have to be a Muslim to be struggling. You know, just to try to pay your bills is a struggle, which is what a lot of Muslims and non-Muslims try to do. And generally, the, the strongest jihad is that with ourselves, with trying to be better people, you know, trying to exercise patience uh, in times of adversity. Uh, if you are a drug addict, you know, trying to get back to normalcy and moving away from those drugs, you're going through a jihad as well. So that jihad of yourself is the best and the strongest and the greatest jihad we all go through. Mm-hmm. You're right. But those that have circumvented jihad, how do you get to those people? It comes down to education again. Uh, we need to go to the youth. And what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has done, it's implemented a nationwide education program in all of our mosques and over 70 chapters across this country. And we train our youth on the true teachings and the core teachings of Islam, which is, you know, there's one God, there's uh, a jihad that we go through of, of with ourselves. And then we enact these teachings by training our youth to go out into the communities and work in soup kitchens, volunteer in communities, hold blood drives. You know, since 2011, the... 10th anniversary of 9-11, we've been holding a blood drive called Muslims for Life. I, by the way, can I interrupt you for just for one moment? We actually had someone call in and ask about, uh, wanted to question you about volunteering the blood drive during the convention. How can he get this information? Oh, yes. Uh, go to our website, uh, convention.ahmadiyya.us. That's A-H-M-A-D-I-Y-Y-A. And there you can also register for our special guest reception we have on Saturday afternoon. Now, Scott, hundreds of people come to our guest reception every year, hundreds of non-Muslims, and many come back year after year because they love the environment. So if you haven't come to our convention yet, do come out and, and see for yourself. Free parking, free entry, free dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear also, one of the things we hear most often uh, here in this country uh, is the difference between uh, Sunnis and Shia. Uh, Ahmadiyya's Sunni or Shia? We would fall under the Sunni branch. And in Islam, there's over 70 uh, communities or with over 70 sects within Islam. So there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could, I, I know it's difficult to do. But the simple differences between Sunni and, and Shia. So simple difference is that uh, Shia believe that the fourth caliph, uh, Ali, should have been the first caliph. And so they are, Shia is a, an Arabic word which means party. So their full name was Shia al-Ali, which means the party of Ali. They wanted to see Ali rise up um, as the first caliph, even though Ali didn't. And the Sunnis believe that the four uh, caliphs after Prophet Muhammad were the right, uh, rightful and uh, uh, caliphs. The difference with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is that we are Muslims who believe in the Messiah, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, India. 
And over 120 years ago, he started these annual conventions. Uh, the first one had a few dozen people. And now we see them all over the world in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of people who attend. I want to read you uh, something and read our audience, too. You just mentioned, mentioned uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the promised Messiah, believed his objective was to defend and propagate Islam globally through peaceful means, to revive the forgotten Islamic values of peace, forgiveness, and sympathy for all mankind, and to establish peace in the world through the teachings of Islam. He believed that his message has special relevance relevance, I can read, relevance for the Western world, which he believed had descended into materialism. Ahmadi teachings state that all the major world religions had divine origins and were part of the divine plan toward the establishment of Islam as the final religion because it was the most complete and perfected the previous teachings of other religions, but they believe that all other religions had drifted away from their original form and have been corrupted. Now, the final religion is what stood out to me, and I guess that uh, in the context of our conversation, that there, those who may be radicalized would see that those three words, the final religion, and say that you're not practicing this final religion worldwide. That you know the, we have the go ahead to go out and, and harm people. Right. So the Quran is very clear in this matter, and it says uh, in chapter two, there is no compulsion in religion. This whole concept of convert or die is no basis in Islam. You know, Islam believes in the freedom of conscience, and Prophet Muhammad is the best exemplar in Islamic history uh, who defended the freedom of conscience. The Quran also says that it is uh, incumbent, it is mandatory for Muslims to defend churches and temples and cloisters and mosques and houses of worship where God is praised. Because if those institutions fall down, then the freedom of conscience is gone. And what's beautiful about that Quranic verse, Scott, is that mosques are mentioned last. You know, it's the churches and the synagogues and the cloisters that have just as much importance. And what we unfortunately saw happen in Normandy over the past 48 hours, mm -hmm. uh, where a, a Christian priest, was, a father, was, was, was slaughtered in front of his, his congregation, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy in its truest form. And based on what I just said, Islam does not uh, teach this in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we've heard about the Islamic State is that they have done a real good job uh, in social media uh, attracting those who may be leaning toward radicalization. Um, who are the people who become radicalized? Well, I mean, why are they attracted to that message? And generally what we've seen is it's the youth who, who don't have that full teaching of Islam, who hear these buzzwords of jihad and mujahideen and Prophet Muhammad and this and that, and they join these forces thinking that this is the way to, to go because they're having identity issues as well. So what we have done is we've issued a, a rebuttal on social media. We have a very thriving campaign called uh, True Islam USA. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at True Islam USA. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the same handle and just join the conversation. Uh, we have some fantastic minute-long short videos that talk about these 11 points and break them down very easily. It's like an Islam 101 course for Muslims and non-Muslims so that we nip extremism in the bud, which mm -hmm. is with education. Mm -hmm. Can you compare yours to, obviously I'm not going to ask you to compare yours to the Islamic State, but that these messages that attract people who seem to be disenfranchised? 
we are able to reach out to them just as effectively as uh, ISIS or other extremist groups do. And also, ours is more strong because we have the backing of Twitter uh, in this, in these efforts. We've met with Twitter. Uh, they are fully supportive of our efforts. And you don't see our accounts being shut down for what we're doing. <laughs> have you ever, and I don't know about you personally, but uh, in the, the uh, in the community, uh, have, have you been able to stop people from uh, being radicalized? You know, these types of uh, uh, data points are, are, it's not something people like to talk about because it's something when they are extreme, when they are going towards extremist uh, ideas, it's something once they realize that they were wrong, it's something that they're very ashamed about. Uh, I know a couple who might have felt uh, extreme in some ways, or from, never to the point of death to America, or I want to go join them. But it's always something that you see teenagers go through in any type of angst, any type of rebellion, whether you're a Muslim or a Muslim. You know, you want to stay out past curfew. You want to, you know, go do drugs or whatever it is. These teenagers, these adolescents, all rebel in some way, shape, or form. And we just need to show them that we are here for you. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to kill you for what you're thinking. We're here to talk about it, and we want to offer them that chance to have that dialogue. What do you think personally when you hear about uh, a terrorist attack or some type of violence carried out in the name of Islam? It's a tragedy in every single form. Our prayers will always go out to those who have, uh, who were innocent victims of this all. Um, the Islam never teaches any sort of terrorism. And the Quran it says that persecution is worse than murder even. Uh, when uh, Orlando happened, I flew down same day uh, and I donated blood in Orlando. You know, I attended a prayer service just so I could pray for what happened. It was the worst gun uh, shooting in American history based on somebody who might have been uh, a follower of Islam. What does Islam, and I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but uh, this is probably for many people one of the best educations they've gotten about uh, Islam. Uh, what does the Quran say, or does it say anything? What does Islam say about homosexuality? Because uh, the killer in Orlando was targeting the LBG community. So in Islam, there is no punishment simply for saying that you're homosexual. Your homosexual lifestyle is something that is between you and your God and the privacy of your own home. There is no punishment for homosexuality within the Quran. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Salam Badi is the spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. Conference starts Friday, and you, as you said, uh, that non-Muslims are welcome. It's at the Farm Show Arena in Harrisburg. Uh, what would they get out of it? Oh, they would get out. Uh, they would make a Muslim friend, at least one. Uh, they'd get some free meals. They'd get to uh, be involved in an interfaith dialogue with many people. And they'll get to learn a little bit more about Islam and see Muslims in action, being friendly, being hospitable. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's really a magical atmosphere. You don't, if you can't make it Saturday afternoon, you're more than welcome to attend Friday or Sunday as well. Mm -hmm. Mr. Badi, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Day three of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, and joining us is Franklin, a Marshall College political analyst and pollster, Dr. G. Terry Madonna. Dr. Madonna, welcome back to the program. Well, I'm glad to be here now. We had a little excitement at the Pennsylvania caucus. Uh, Bernie Sanders was supposed to show, and he did, and he canceled, and then 
actor Danny Glover. Remember Lethal Weapon? Oh, yeah. He was supposed to be here. So he wasn't. So we're all, you know, what happened to the program this morning? <laughs> so what did happen? Oh, I don't know. Oh. Uh, I read where uh, Sanders was speaking to the New Hampshire delegation at 9 o'clock. And they did say there was a scheduling conflict, but uh, maybe he chose New Hampshire. You know, they have all that electoral vote. Well, there. that's what I was going to say. We kind of had uh, a few more. <laughs> you know, that has to be a little bit of a disappointment for the Pennsylvania delegation because uh, Senator Sanders, other than Hillary Clinton, has been the talk of the Democratic National Convention. Oh, sure. And when I saw on the agenda that he was going to be speaking to the Pennsylvania de- delegation, I thought that just shows how important Pennsylvania is. Then yeah. I heard you told me in a text that he wasn't going to make it and it was going to be Danny Glover. Okay, with all due respect to Danny Glover, I loved a lot of his movies, but he's no Bernie Sanders. Oh, well, of course. And, you know, they had, you know, they always, Meryl Streep, you know, she was on last evening. They all, both conventions, you know, you bring some movie stars in, you bring some, you know, famous people to add a little pizzazz to the, to the uh, event. Uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of disappointment now. Josh Shapiro, of course, who's the Democratic candidate for uh, attorney general, spoke, uh, and, you know, some labor leaders. But, I, I, you know, I think there was a lot of excitement, uh, you're right, for Sanders. I mean, Sanders has, you know, there's a fair number of delegates. Hillary won our state by nine, ten points in the primary in, all, in April 26. So this is a Clinton delegation. But there was... Uh, fair amount of, uh, you know, support for uh, Bernie in the, in, in the delegation. So, Terry, the first few days of this convention were dominated by the Sanders delegates, uh, the protests, uh, the emails, the leaked emails. But, you know, Hillary Clinton, history was made uh, last night when she became the first woman who was nominated, uh, the nominee of uh, a major political party in the United States. Has that transition made where it the talk has gone from Sanders to now Clinton? Yeah. I think uh, for a good many of the delegates, that certainly took place. But Sanders people were not happy last night. Uh, there were, I think, something like four arrests. That's not a big deal. Trying to climb over the fence. Uh, which, you know, is very hard to climb because there's no place to put your fingers or your feet. And then there were some anguish between the Sanders uh, folks and the Clinton folks on the floor, some exchange, and the security had to step in. And then there was a, what I call a minor walkout of the Sanders people, not not big. And then throughout in, in various places in the city last night, Scott, there were some Sanders rallies. Overall, I think the party is slowly developing unity, not unlike what we saw at the Republican convention, where the Democrats will be more united when they leave. Now, there'll be a contingent of the Sanders folks, maybe 10 or 15 percent of them that will not support Clinton. They'll probably sit the election out. But I think that they're beginning to gather steam. Bill Clinton's uh, very personal speech about his wife last evening. Tonight we have, of course, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. So overall, 
I think they're, you know, they're coalescing around her. Let's talk about uh, former President Clinton and what he had to say last night. Was he effective in, you use the term humanizing, I've heard other people talk about it, uh, talking yeah. about what they refer to as the real Hillary Clinton. Was he effective doing that? Yeah. Well, I mean, from I, I think he was. Now, there are different views. Uh, uh, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC was appalled that he talked about the girl. And, I mean, come on. He was talking about a young – you know what I mean. Right. I, 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 I think that was just way over the top. I mean, obviously we have to be very careful about the language we use and respectful. But he was talking about, uh, you know, the way people talked at the time when he was – you know, they were reporting. I, I thought that was the per- first part of that was by far the most perfective. Uh, it went on a little too long. Where did we hear that before? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> we were, uh, namely, Donald J. Trump. Right? Yeah. We were, well, not only we that, I was thinking to Bill Clinton himself, his first appearance before a na- on a national stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. And uh, nobody ever said Bill Clinton was without words. That's for uh, as sure. We, uh, as we know. So the bottom line was, he. I thought he did, and look, no one else could have done what he did in the way in which he did it. And I think overall, given the fact that she's viewed as aloof and a little cold and distant and doesn't, doesn't connect well with people, I think, I, I, I think he did a, uh, as good a job as anybody could have done. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see how effective it is with the folks you know, who were watching on TV, but uh, overall, and, and, you know, he does look a little, he's obviously more frail, you know, he, he's not obviously nearly as young as he was when he ran for office in 1992, uh, but I thought it was very well delivered. Mm. So what to expect from Joe Biden and President Obama tonight? What are they uh, hoping to say? I, I think they're going to talk about uh, how they know her, they're going to talk about her leadership. They're going to talk how, about how important she has been to the administration. Uh, I think uh, the president will talk about uh, how, what, what kind of advice she gave him and how he took that advice, her leadership in world affairs. And, you know, the Republicans are going to come back, and for all the litany of, of praise that you get, they're going to talk about Libya. They're going to talk about the war in Iraq. They're going to talk about ISIS, something that the Democrats clearly are not talking about here. But I think they're going to try to make the point that she has the quality, the attributes, the skills, and the knowledge to be president of the United States. Something you just mentioned, Terry, uh, and I have heard very little about foreign affairs at this convention. It is focused almost entirely on uh, domestic issues when we're talking about right. uh, the issues. Uh, in fact, Trump, Donald Trump came out yesterday. I saw a clip where he said, did you hear the word ISIS mentioned ISIS, anywhere right, right. at the Democratic National Convention? And, you know, that for some voters, that's a big issue. I mean, oh, no, no. Look, the war on terror, along with the economy, are going to dominate the are going to dominate the campaign. Now, you're exactly right. There's a dearth of, of comments about foreign affairs because, quite frankly, it's perceived as a weakness that, you know, after 
eight years of the almost eight years of the Obama administration, we have these problems around the world, and there was no 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 mention of the latest uh, attack. This one on a church, uh, uh, on a, on a congregation, a minister, you know, nothing. That's virtually missing from the discussion here. Now maybe it will come out tonight with the president or the vice president when they make their comments. And it's interesting how these conventions pose very different, uh, very different pictures of the world. One focused on domestic policies, the other focusing on, uh, well, not just domestic, but spent a great deal of time talking about foreign policy. The other thing that I think is is really is really fascinating is how much time speakers say the same thing. Both at both conventions, you know, it's okay. We're having a repeat of what we just said. Mm. Well, you know, with the major networks only carrying an hour of the coverage from 10 to 11, uh, a lot of viewers aren't seeing that as much as what they would have in in, right. in, in past uh, conventions. Of course, you, you know, you do have the people who are uh, really into it, the political junkies who are watching C-SPAN uh, yeah. and PCN for those who are interested in what's going on in the Pennsylvania delegation. Let's talk right. a little bit about that, uh, Terry. What issues, uh, when you're with because you're with the Pennsylvania delegation fairly often right during this convention yeah, I, what issues yeah. are most important to the Pennsylvania delegation well right now Scott they're really boosting their candidates running for the state row up Josh Shapiro as I mentioned spoke we didn't hear from Katie Ginty. uh she's not been a huge presence she's supposed to be on stage tomorrow night I guess with other senatorial candidates Democratic senatorial candidates uh, I mean, essentially, at the caucus breakfast, they're talking about pretty much the same issues. The, the PA delegation has a heavy union presence, uh, and meaning that virtually every day a spokesperson from the various unions are up talking about the middle class, labor issues, wages, uh, how average workers are being left behind. I'd say if there was – and the other thing is diversity – uh, and inclusion. They're sort of the two big themes that not just run through the convention as a whole, but run through the PA delegation, which, which organized labor, as you know, plays a huge role in the Democratic Party. And at this convention has a major presence, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm, let me digress for a minute. I'm standing on Broad Street where, at the hotel where we're all staying, the PA delegation. I want to tell you, the place is swarming with security and helicopters flying overhead, uh, you know, police helicopters. The, the security here, I think the presence may be even greater than what we saw in Cleveland. Really? Yeah. Well, Terry, we're out of time for today's show. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow, but uh, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden's uh, catch up with Biden if you get a chance, okay? I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll try that with 18,000 security people in a convention with 25,000 people. At any rate, it's fun. I, 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 we'll catch up tomorrow right. and uh, stay cool. All right. Thanks, Terry. Tomorrow, a new campaign from the Feel Your Boobies organization.